This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2012 at the University of Virginia, brought to you by UVA's Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement. Over the past few decades, connoisseurs of craft beer have celebrated an explosion of choices as brewers get more sophisticated about how to mix hops and barley. But how did this come about? That's the subject of this conversation called Beer Engineering 101. That's the subject of this conversation called Beer Engineering 101. Mark Thompson is the brewmaster at Star Hill Brewery in Crozet, Virginia. Thompson has worked in Denver and Portland before coming to Albemarle County. Star Hill has won numerous awards, including the 2005 Gold at the Great American Beer Festival for an Irish dry stout. Thompson teaches an occasional short course on beer tasting at UVA. Beer is one of the few things in, 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 in this life that crosses all races, all religions, all colors and creeds. Every culture on this planet celebrates their rite of passage around a fermented cereal grain beverage that we call beer. And so when I started Star Hill Brewing Company, uh, you know, we, our mission has always been the gift of great beer because we truly believe in that mission that beer is where we celebrate our, our, our rites of passage. If, if, we, uh, if our team, if you use a sports analogy, if our team wins the game, we might have one beer. If our team loses the game, we have two beers. So it cuts across all, uh, all, 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 all sides of things. And a little background on me, as I mentioned, 1965, born at the Martha Jefferson Hospital, Gradu <laughs> graduated from Western Albemarle High School in 1984, got my Bachelor's of Science, uh, Bachelor's of Science degree, biology from James Madison University, and then I moved out to, to Portland, Oregon. So in the 1992 blog is where, for me, things really got interested. Uh, I was working on my Master's degree in uh, Portland State University, uh, and I, a friend of mine, we were playing poker one night, and a friend of mine came over, and he had this case of kind of mislabeled bottles of beer, and we all said, well, where'd you get that? Well, there's a local microbrewer that just had opened up in Portland in 1992, and they paid you minimum wage and a free case of beer every day. And you know, at age 22, I thought that might be the best job you could ever have, uh, getting paid in proverbial free beer. So I took a part-time job at, at a microbrewery called Norwester Brewing Company in Portland, Oregon. And really, uh, the heavens opened up. All the science that I'd studied, all the chemistry and, and microbiology and, and classes that I'd taken, you know, really made sense to me. And I got into the game uh, in the, at the right place at the right time in 1992 when microbrewing or craft brew was really coming out of the soup for the first time in, in, in the uh, Pacific Northwest. So after a Norwester in 1995, moved to Denver, Colorado, where I started a Mile High Brewing Company. It's uh, neither of the first two brews are still around, but so I started a brewery in Denver, Colorado in 1995. Had the opportunity to come back uh, to my hometown of Charlottesville in uh, 1999, where I founded Star Hill. Prior to 2007, from 99 to 2007, we were more or less a. Uh, uh, a brew pub operation, uh, you know, making beer in our storefront, and uh, we, 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 as we grew, we moved the facility, we grew to a very large production facility, and, and you can see the, you know, the growth of, of the brand from 48, 50,000 cases in 2007 to about 336,000 cases estimate for this year. Great growth from, you know, 106%, 70, and then in the mid-20s, and, and part of what this, all of this is about is about, you know, and in, in what has been considered or talked about one of the worst economic climates of our lifetimes. Craft beer, microbrewed beers have continued to thrive and continued to grow. Beer is an $8 billion industry. So um, beer is one of the top beverages uh, in the country is an $8 billion industry. The average consumer, as they come, come of legal drinking age, they're not drinking their dad's beer anymore. They're really, there's a diversification in, in different flavors and styles and products that allow the consumer now to really experiment with uh, a lot of different flavors. Um, 
So this is our, this is our, 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 our sales sheet or fact sheet, and you can see these are all the beers that Star Hill makes. These first, I guess, six are everyday beers. We make them every day, and these last three are our seasonal beers. So right now, our spring and summer seasonal is a Pilsner beer. It gives way uh, in the fall to a pumpkin porter, which is spiced with a little bit of pumpkin spice, and there's a lot of pumpkin puree. And then we do kind of a higher strength uh, beer called the Gift, which is a uh, pale bock uh, for the wintertime months. As I mentioned, Northern Lights, it's India Pale Ale. It's the, uh, the, the, the fastest growing and best, it's the best selling India Pale Ale in the state of Virginia. We make a wheat beer that we call the Love. We have a stout, uh, Dark Star Stout, which is very you know dark in color, a lot of chocolate and coffee flavors. We have two lagers here, Festi and Jomo. Uh, Festi is kind of an am American amber lager. Jomo is a uh, Vienna style lager, and so a Vienna lager is uh, is noted by its caramel sweetness. And it came from a certain region of the world in Vienna where they that was the style of beer that they enjoy. They they, they made that beer kind of just for themselves. And now fast forward, uh, brewers from across the country make styles of beer called Vienna lagers based on just a natural uh, occurrence um, from from where they had made the beer. Amber Ale is the first beer we ever made. It's an Irish red ale, so it's kind of malty, it's sweet. Um, and then we also have a beer called Double Platinum, so with a, which is an uh, imperial IPA. So it's, it's, uh, it's a, a pale ale, with a, it's been dry hopped. It has even more hop aroma, flavor, and bitterness, and it's, it's about 8.5% alcohol. So with the explosion of the India Pale Ales, you're also seeing this kind of hybrid uh, with taking this brand, Northern Lights, and putting it on some steroids to get a beer as, as if, it, if it can be any more bitter than it normally was. That's, uh, that's our Double Platinum. So yeah, Northern Lights India Pale Ale. Um, you can see here on the, on the product description sheet, uh, it's, uh, it's a two-row, these are the different barleys, uh, which is two-row pale malt, caramel malt, Munich, and then wheat. Each of these uh, malts give a different flavor. The caramel malt is, is noted for its sweetness, so it, prov it provides a, a little bit of residual sugars that are left over in the beer that make the beer taste a little bit sweet. And then probably the most important thing for this beer are the different hops that we use. So we use Cascade and Golding hops. The Goldings are kind of a classic British or English style hops. And Cascade is, a, is, a, is the quintessential American style hop. Uh, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, which is you know, more or less invented the American style pale ale, um, and uh, used this hop here, the Cascade hop, which has a very signature grapefruit uh, citrus-like quality to it, um, partially because they were located near, uh, near Oregon and uh, where most of the hops are grown in America. Um, that hop was brand new at the time when they launched their brewery, and um, it's made their brand you know, very, very uh, uh, unique. The flavor is uh, intense, high, uh, high hop aroma, flavor and bitterness. It's a very hoppy uh, uh, style of beer. This bitterness thing here, and this is as we get into kind of diving into beer and beer um, geekiness, I guess you might say, is that bitterness is a term for the hops and how, how much dry kind of puckering there is on the tongue. A typical domestic lager, Bud Miller Coors, is about a 14. Um, Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale, which is an American Pale Ale, is probably in the mid-40s. This one's at 52. And then the alcohol percentage is about 6.5%. And this, so this alcohol at 6.5 is about a percent and a half higher than most of the other beers that we make, or even uh, as a benchmark using a domestic lager, which is about four and a half, 
Um, but the style, as I was telling you, this is a very interesting story about how this style came about. So the British brewers were responsible for making the beers for the colonists and the uh, sailors in India. And they would make a beer, a typical beer in the time. And you have to think about there was no refrigeration. Um, sanitation was questionable at the time. They would make a normal English-style pale ale. They'd put it in a wooden cask. They'd sail it around the Horn of Africa. And six months later, uh, the beer would spoil and not taste very good. And, and you can imagine if you were a sailor in India and it was 100 degrees and part of your pay was rations of beer, <laughs> you weren't too psyched about your, your, uh, your pay that day. So the British brewers really out of necessity made a beer that was a little bit higher in hops and a higher in, uh, in alcohol. And those two things did uh, you know, miraculous things. The hops, the hop oils in beer um, uh, have an antibacterial effect. Just uh, so they help to preserve beer and sanitize beer. And then the ethanol itself, obviously you wash your hair, wipe your hands with a Purell, uh, that sanitizes as well. So the point of the story is that the British brewers out of necessity made what, what went on to become the India Pale Ale, a beer that was higher in hops and higher in alcohol. It made the voyage around the Horn of Africa and uh, tasted fresh and everyone rejoiced and the, the British sailors were happy again. Um, so that's Star Hill's India Pale Ale. So this is a, a little bit more of a dive in on our seasonal beers. You can see right now from, uh, from March through July, uh, we have this Pilsner beer. Pilsner beers are, you know, we're kind of in, invented it for, for lack of a better word, in Pilsen, Czechoslovakia. Uh, they didn't understand uh, at the time, but the water in, in uh, Pilsen, Czechoslovakia was very soft. And very soft water allowed them to make a very light-colored beer. And up until that point, uh, most of the beers were darker in color. Um, they came, the, the water was a lot harder, a lot more calcium and minerals in the water. But uh, Pilsen Czechos the Pilsner beer was born in Pilsen Czechoslovakia um, because of the fact that they had very soft brewing water. Uh, our fall seasonal, which is August through uh, October, is a pumpkin porter. So it's, uh, you know, the porter is another interesting story. This is kind of a, an American hybrid uh, in the fact that it's, you know, we've added pumpkin, a little bit of pumpkin pie spice uh, in the Whirlpool, the last step that gives it some aroma of, of pumpkin pie. There's a lot of pumpkin puree. Uh, back, in the, you know, back in the early colonial times, uh, you know, people made beer out of anything they could find readily available. The colonists oftentimes made beer with just straight pumpkins. They fermented the sugar in the pumpkins. But the, the point of, one of the points of this story, story is, as we talked about the India Pale Ale, just second ago. Porter is a great, uh, another great story. The typical publican uh, in, in, uh, in England at the time had, a, had three different beers that he would serve, a, kind of a light, a medium, and a dark. They were unfiltered. They were in wooden casks. And when the, when the beers got really low in the, in the keg or the cask, they would get really milky and cloudy. They really were not servable. Uh, or saleable. So the, the, the British barkeep would then blend these three dregs of the uh, kegs together and they would serve them at a lower price to the working class, the porter class of England. And out of that kind of necessity or trying to squeeze as much liquid or profit as you can, the, the publican uh, back in the day created a style of beer out of necessity again where we, we now know it as the porter beer. The beer became very popular in England and the British brewers then started making a beer that was called porter and marketed as porter. Beer. Um, the stout category uh, actually grew out of porters, so porters were kind of the first uh, incarnation of a darker, sweeter beer. The stouts were actually a, a little bit higher during the time, a higher gravity version of a porter, and, uh, and uh, very often exported or, or made for export. So your stout, meaning a kind of more robust style of beer, kind of sprung out of, out of the porter story. Then we get back to our winter beer from November through February. We have the gift. Uh, our mission or our slogan has always been the gift of great beer. So this beer really reflects that, uh, reflects that mission. This is a pale style of, uh, 
um, a, a, a pale Bach beer. So it's got some Pilsner malt in it, caramel from some sweetness. You can see the hop here. I don't know if you can see it. It's a Hallertauer. It's a German style hop, very German style of beer. A little bit of alcohol warming uh, and a sweet finish, 6.5% uh, uh, alcohol. So those are Star Hill's three seasonal beers, and it gives you kind of a, a play on a little bit of a representation of, of, of three of the multitude of different styles that are out there that Star Hill does every year. These, all right, so we're going to walk through a, a revisionist history of beer. The, the craft consumer is now more educated than they ever have been before. They understand extreme beer. They understand what a 13% 200 bitterness unit flavored with cocoa puffs and raspberry juice tastes like. They get it. They understand it. They've had it. But at the same time, beer, because it is the beverage of cultures throughout time, they want to have a liquid that they can you know, watch the presidential debates. They can watch a football game. They want a beverage that they can enjoy the art of, the, of drinking a beer, where they, beer is such a social thing. So the point of that is I see the industry swing. I see it going kind of two ways. It's in, in totality, the beers that keep the lights on, that sell a lot, the alcohol percentages are going to drop, the, uh, the overall intensity, the shock and awe factors are going to come back down. That's, that's the way and one of the reasons we made the Pilsner beer, uh, because I do believe that the, at the end of the day, the consumers really want to enjoy the company of friends and they want to enjoy that the liquid is a, is a kind of complement to the occasion, not the occasion itself. The other small segment within that, which we're seeing now, is the, uh, the idea of luxury, the idea of, a, of, of, of the super high end. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an explosion as well within craft of this uh, wine bottle format, the big bottle format, the uh, aged and oak, um, something that you would pay, you know, like a high end bottle of champagne, Dom Perignon, where you would pay a, you know, a fairly high price for a very small amount of liquid, a champagne bottle of beer um, that you would share, that you would drink on very limited, very special occasions. So while the, the, in totality, I see the industry swinging back to a more moderate alcohol and flavor threshold, there is a lot of growth in that high, super high end seg segment, but it's not what's keeping the lights on for any brewery out there. It, it builds like a halo effect. So the revisionist history of beer by Mark Thompson, you can quote me on all of these things. So, According to one prominent anthropologist, what lured our ancient ancestors out of their caves may not have been their thirst for knowledge, but a thirst for beer. Dr. Solomon Katz theorizes that when man learned to ferment grain into beer more than 10,000 years ago, it became one of, uh, one of his most important sources of nutrition. Beer gave people protein that unfermented grains could not supply, and besides, it tasted a whole lot better than unfermented grain did. But in order to have a steady supply of beer, it was necessary to have a steady supply of beer's ingredients. Man had to give up his pneumatic ways, settle down, and begin farming. And once he did, civilization was just a stone's throw away. So if you, if you learn anything today, is that beer is really responsible of why we have civilization uh, today. It, pre, it predates uh, bread, and I, I was, I've always found that to be you know, just something that I can hang my hat on every morning when I get up and go to work. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what that is. So a quick overview of, of, of beer itself. You know, beer's been made forever and ever and ever. Predates, predates bread. 4,300 B.C., the Babylonians had clay tablets for recipes of how to make beer. They're hieroglyphs on the, uh, on the Egyptian tombs. 1516 is another kind of mile marker where the Reinholzgebot laws in Germany and the Germans still to this day take their beer making extremely uh, passionately. Um, they made a set of laws uh, that beer could only be made with four ingredients, barley, hops, water, and, uh, and yeast. And uh, anyone who made beer with other ingredients was you know, persecuted for that. 1620, the pilgrims uh, landed on Plymouth Rock. Why? Because they were out of beer. 
<laughs> like, forget this sailing thing, we're done. There's land, turn the boat around, and we're going and we're landing in Providence Town, Massachusetts. And one of the, the captain wrote about, you know, mutiny on the boat and all of these things. And one of the, the ones that, again, I hung on to is that they were out of beer. So they, they, they parked their boat in Providence Town and you know, settled America as we know it today. 1786, being from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, at the Monticello began to write about his passion for beer and uh, the things that he did to make beer uh, on the Monticello. We're going to come back to this one uh, after the, uh, the history is done because of the, you know, the ties of, of the university into, to uh, Charlottesville. Uh, 1800s, uh, big immigration wave. So the German immigrants started moving to uh, the United States. So you had Bush, Miller, Coors, Strohs, and Schlitz all uh, German immigrants coming to America and bringing with them this passion for beer and uh, began kind of the, if you will, the, the rise of industrialized beer production uh, here in America. Uh, 1876, uh, Louis Pasteur unravels the mystery of beer before Pasteur. Um, you know, beer, uh, the fermentation process was a mystery. Louis Pasteur, we all think of him for what, what scientific invention? Pasteurization. And we all think of that for what food product? Milk. Well, they were pasteurizing beer about 18 years prior to pasteurizing milk, and Pasteur did all of his most famous scientific research in a German brewery, and he was the one that uh, discovered that it was a single-celled organism called a yeast cell that was responsible for converting sugar into ethanol and carbon dioxide, which is what we call beer. Um, 1880, uh, the number of breweries peaked at about 2,300 beer or 2,300 breweries, and then. The great experiment, prohibition. Things come crashing down and, and crashing to an end. Uh, the temperance movement, breweries are forced to go under and, and shut down. Um, we then fast forward to uh, the, the happier part of the story, 1933, prohibition ends. 1965, uh, Fritz Maytag, uh, heir to the uh, Maytag washer dryer empire, buys a alien regional brewery in San Francisco. And this event has been kind of credited with the beginning of, of craft beer or microbrewing in, in America. Um, 1976, Jimmy Carter legalizes home brewing for the first time. Up until then, uh, home brewing was still technically illegal in America. 1980, four years later, uh, Ken Grossman uh, founds Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. It's one of the first uh, uh, craft breweries here, here in America. But then even from 1980 and then in 1990, still to, at this point, five breweries that I mentioned controlled 90% of all beer sold in America is controlled by these five breweries. Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Coors, Strohs, and Heilman have 90% of all beer sold in, in, in America. 1999, um, the Starhill Breweries founded. This number is not correct, but in 2011, there were more breweries for the first time since Prohibition. Uh, and we, you know, so then the sky is the limit. Uh, where it stops is anybody's guess. I mean, there are now again more breweries than there were ever before. There's a lot of consumer demand. But at the same time, uh, there are, I think, there's somewhere in the near 2,000 breweries that are, that are open and operating in America right now. There are 1,000 more planned for this year. So, you know, there's a huge explosion in craft breweries, a number of craft breweries. Where it all, where the merry-go-round stops is anybody's guess. Um, so I, then I said I'd come back to this. So Star Hill has been working on, or actually we have a beer that we've done uh, with a lot of work through the universe, uh, with uh, the Thomas uh, Monticello Foundation, excuse me. So we now have a beer of Monticello Reserve Ale based on, it's got a great story, it's really fuzzy that you can't read, but based on a lot of the things that Jefferson did and wrote about, and he was very passionate about his beer making. Uh, you know, often said that he, he tried to make wine but never did, but was able to make beer. Uh, a couple of quick quotes that, you know, beer, if drank in moderation, softens the temper, cheers the spirit, and promotes health. 
Another one that is actually on the label here is that I have lately become a brewer for family use, having had the benefit of instruction to one of my people by an Englishman, uh, English brewer of the first order. And this is in from 1815. So uh, Jefferson planted his first hop garden in 1794, and this is all documented uh, and part of the research that we did to make this beer. Um, was all uncovered in like a lot of these letters, but this uh, Captain Joseph Miller taught uh, the Hemings family, the slave family, how to brew beer in 1812, uh, and then in 1814, Tom Jefferson built a brew house up there for uh, that they were still looking for uh, archaeologically. But the unique thing about this is that Jefferson writes a lot about. Uh, if you're interested in beer, there's a lot of kind of uh, research on the web about this. But you know, beer can be made, as I mentioned, with pumpkins or any kind of fermentable sugar. Uh, Jefferson wrote uh, that, that he did not think that beer could be made with any recipe, that uh, typically beer is made with barley, uh, but he did not have access to barley, so he, uh, he used wheat and corn, uh, which he had available, and he wrote a lot about how he was unable to find barley, or if he did, the prices were too high. So, so this beer is kind of a, is a, is a wheat and corn beer with no barley in it, which is part of what makes it unique. It's got English, uh, an English uh, East Kent Golden Hops, which are an English and Wild American uh, Cross hop variety, an English ale yeast, um, and it's, again, uh, we came out with this after about six years of research uh, about a year ago. It's on draft at a few places around town. It also comes in a commemorative uh, 750 bottle. But, uh, so Jefferson was very, very passionate about beer. And so in the research of, of a beer like this, how many iterations or trials do we do? Uh, you know, I guess most of this beer was, is, was in, the, in the classroom, in the, uh, in the books and all of that. Once we started the actual process of, of cooking and making it, we did three or four test batches that we, we kind of sat down and tasted. And mainly what we were aiming for is we, we didn't want to make a beer that was historically accurate but tasted not very good. I mean, that doesn't do anyone really any good to make that. I mean, it doesn't do me any good. <laughs> I'm in the business of s selling beer. I mean, some historical person might, might disagree with me. But, um, so, you know, it was, it was, so we made it mainly for the, you know, once we tried several trials. And they all were pretty similar to, uh, to, uh, to taste. But we made it... Uh, Two or three different batches, and then and then people will, will often ask when you make a new like the Pilsner beer, how do you how does that process work? So sometimes we will have a name and a label picked out for a brand that we really like, and then we'll brew a beer in behind it. Other times we we, we will do trials and test batches of a beer, and then take months to find the name and the imagery that goes with it. So it kind of goes both ways. Um, but typically we'll do uh, like a 15 gallon kind of you take we have a keg, a homebrew system you would call it kegs cut off the top, which we'll do 15 gallons, and then we'll scale that up to 150 gallons, then to 300, and then to a normal production batch, which is about 3,000 gallons for us. All right, beers ingredients. This is pretty straightforward, but um, you know, you've got water, and water obviously is a huge, uh, very important factor in beer. As I mentioned, the Pilsen story about Pilsen uh, water being, being very soft, uh, you know, 93 to 95% of beer is water. So your water source really does matter. The minerals in that water, the hardness of that water, how much calcium and sulfate and the chemistry of the water. You know, but that being said, today uh, we, can, we can get, as brewers, we get water analysis, and we can then mimic waters from around the world, which we often do. So we will filter our water, and then we will then add different minerals chemicals back so when we make uh, an India pale ale which has got a certain water profile we'll, uh, you know, we'll change the water chemistry versus a Pilsner beer which has a lighter profile where uh, we'll keep the water a little bit different so that first ingredient pretty self-explanatory 
Barley, you know, if you've never seen the, the great you know, the plains of Kansas and the Dakotas of barley, it's a little plant about like, you know, yay tall. Um, they take the barley and um, it is, it's grown in the, in the Dakotas and through southern Canada. And then it goes through a process called malting. And malting is where we get our sugar. So that's where the sugar and the grain comes from. What they'll do is they'll harvest that barley. They'll put it in a big a silo uh, out, you know, outside, and that seed will overwinter in that silo. The following spring, they will then take the seed out of the silo to a malting facility, and the seed uh, has stored all of its energies, long chains of sugars called carbohydrates. And when they take the seed to the malting uh, plant, they soak it in a large swimming pool. The seed literally grows a root hair where it begins to metabolize its its long uh, 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 carbohydrates into simple sugars. They, they then drain the swimming pool and then they take it to a roasting house like you have for coffee so they'll roast the grain either you know kind of lightly for a, like a Maxwell House roast or very dark for a, a, a Starbucks espresso roast so depending on the roast of the of the barley that we get so we'll have uh, some barley one one variety is called chocolate malt it's as black as night and it has a lot of chocolate and coffee flavors the Pilsner malt, very light in color, and then we will then blend all these different types of barley together um, to make a uh, to make a recipe uh, for whatever style of beer that we're trying to make. But the point, I guess, some of that is that the, these barley, the, the the Pilsner malt and the and the chocolate malt could have been grown in the same field. A lot of it has to do with just the, how the, that uh, grain is roasted. The hops, uh, you know, this is what a, a whole flower hops look like. Um, you can see in here these little uh, glands of yellow resin. This is really what uh, what gives hops the bang for its buck. And um, it's the oils in the hops. They're in the same families of a lot of your basil and cooking herbs. It's the oil in there that's what, really what the brewers are driving for when they use hops. You know, and hops are an interest, in a in, very interesting plant. And before hops, uh, brewers across uh, you know, across the world would use anything they, they had locally available to them to spice their beer. So some brewers would use sassafras roots or uh, spruce tips or heather flowers. The Danish culture had this local plant called the hop plant that they used. And their beer, for some reason, tasted better and lasted longer. We talked briefly about how the oils in this plant have an antibacterial effect, but probably more importantly, they, uh, these oils give us the B word for beer. Anyone know what that is? Bitter. And uh, so unlike that uh, Keystone Light bitter beer face uh, uh, from back in the day, bitterness is a very important component of beer and, and why today, if you fast forward, uh, in order for me to call something beer, it has to have the spice of the hop plant in it. Without bitterness, beer would be this multi-sweet tonic. It'd be this barley juice tonic. That sweetness is balanced by the bitterness. So that, that is the importance of the bitterness of beer balances the malt sweetness to where you know that's why you know beer is, is the most preferred uh, adult beverage um, uh, today is, is because the beer is balanced with this ingredient here, uh, hops. These hops are uh, oftentimes ground up and put into little pellets if you ever go into a brewery and see. They almost look like rabbit food. But that, so that's the hop plant. Several years ago, I think maybe five years ago, there was a global hop shortage. Um, and part of that stemmed from there was a, the largest producer of hops in the Pacific Northwest had an, basically that their, almost their entire year crop burned uh, up in their warehouse. So their warehouse burnt to the ground. You couple that with, uh, with a, you know, uh, a drought in, in England. I'm going to make that up. But so all of these ingredients are commodity markets. It's, it's, it's very similar to the price of gasoline or, you know, why, did, why has gas gone from almost $4, almost $3 in the matter of, of a blink of an eye. Fast forward to the day that the hop production is, uh, is, uh, is, is where it needs to be. The hop prices have stabilized, but yeah, a typical pound of hop uh, during that shortage went from $3 to $23 per pound 
um, based on speculation and based on the global demand um, for the different uh, the usages. The other, the other thing that's, very, that's happening in the hop world is that, is, is, is that monoculture thing, where if you are a farmer of any commodity market, you, you kind of want to just grow one variety and grow the heck out of it and grow bushels and bushels and bushels. Well, the American craft brewer, we like to make six or seven different styles of beer, and each style needs a little bit of each variety of hop. I need some hops from Germany, I need some England, from, from America. So there is still a, uh, a shortage, if you will, of what, what's called aroma variety hops. Uh, plenty of uh, bittering hops, but the aroma varieties um, are still in, in kind of short supply and have a tendency to fluctuate on the open market. So yeast are our, our favorite friend that we talk about. Louis Pasteur is under a microscope. You can see little... Uh, Sister cells here, and you know, so that's a, that's a brand new budding yeast cell. That's the healthy adult cell. Um, in many ways, uh, just like that Dunkin' Donuts commercial, time to make the donuts. Uh, brewers, all we do is feed our yeast. We wake up every morning, we make them a fresh sugar solution, and we feed it to our yeast. And the yeast is what's responsible for the magic of beer. They take uh, the, the maltose, the two-carbon sugar maltose, and they convert that into ethanol and carbon dioxide. Um, and also during the pathway of that conversion, it's called the glycolytic pathway. Lots Lots of the kind of off flavors or, or, or secondary flavors that you get in beer come from that process. So if you taste a beer that might not taste quite right or it might have a flavor like in, in the wheat beers, the German style Hefeweizens have a banana and clove kind of flavor to them, that's a good thing and that occurs during the fermentation process. So yeast again uh, you know, is our friend and if treated properly uh, are really what's responsible for the magic of beer. So in evaluating flavors, again, uh, I'm going to go through this. You want to look at three important things, the appearance of the beer, uh, the aroma, and the taste of the beer. Uh, and, and while looking at the appearance, you want to look at the color, the clarity, and the head retention. And all three of those things are very important. Uh, head retention is the, the white foam that's on top of beer, and that... Uh, tells you a lot about the health of a beer. It has a certain amount of protein in the beer, uh, will cling to the sides of the glass. It's called Brussels lace, and it's a pretty important uh, component of beer. Um, so that's a, just a, a quick shot of from a you know, fairly light-colored beer all the way down to some dark-colored beers, beers as we all kind of know, ranging color and clarity. You know, look at the head on that beer. It's very thick and kind of clinging to the edge of the glass. This one's kind of collapsed uh, on the side of the glass. Um, so that gives you an idea or interpretation of the uh, appearance. The aroma is pretty important, like, and I often will ask a question, which is more important, your tongue or your nose in, in drinking beer as far as flavor goes, and, and it's your nose. Your nose can identify over 300 flavors, and your tongue only four. So this is what's called the beer flavor wheel. It was developed by the Association of Brewing Chemists, and you can look, the inner circle here is all, it's called odor, but two-thirds of beer flavor is in the aroma of beer. So you've got a whole family of sulfur compounds that go from cooked vegetables to struck match to sulfur skunkies to vegetable oil. And <laughs> who would have ever thought there's, there's a cat one in here too. The oil, uh, oils in the hops have, uh, hop oils have a compound called myrcene. And if you've ever smelled an overflowing cat litter box, and that smell, that's, a lot of that smell is myrcene that you smell. So if you ever get a really, really hoppy beer that hasn't been treated pretty well, you might taste or it might remind you of a cat litter box, and I'm, I'm dead on true about that. I've written that as a comment on a judging sheet. So that's the flavor wheel of beer. 
two-thirds uh, are, are in the aroma, and then over here in the flavors, you can see sweet, salt, bitter, uh, and sour. And uh, I've got a picture of the tongue here. So your tongue can only, uh, only perceive these four compounds, bitter on the back of your tongue. So those bumps in the back of your tongue is uh, where you perceive bitterness. And you know one of the reasons why beer is much superior to wine, because you can taste wine and spit it into a bucket. You can't taste beer unless you actually swallow it. So you learn another thing today. So the bitterness is in the back of the tongue. You kind of sweeten. That was a little laden laugh there. I don't know. The delivery on that one could have been a little better, I think. But you got sweet and sour on the side. I mean, excuse me, sour and salt on the sides, and then sweet on the top. But your tongue will only ever perceive those four uh, flavors. Um, you know, and, and your, your tongue and your nose a lot more. So I think that's the last slide. And thank you guys very much for coming out today. I really do appreciate it. You all have a great rest of your, uh, your week here. Thank you very much.